Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. Today, I am speaking with Foon Yap. She is a classically trained violinist and vocalist in Calgary. Today, we are here to talk to her about her new single, Free and Easy Wandering. Before this, she released her debut solo album in 2016 called Palimset that delves into her Chinese Catholic heritage and the cha- classically music training she received as a child. The new single, Free and Easy Wandering, is now available digitally. In creating the song, it is part of Funyap's response to social isolation and a time of uncertainty while also exploring Asian heritage. Now, here is my interview with Funyap. And so, uh, I guess, um, I guess, tell me a little bit about your background as a musician and violinist. Mm-hmm. So, I started a violin when I was four, and I studied in the classical style at a conservatory for many years. And eventually, I realized that the conservatory wasn't the place for me. I was someone who really felt a desire to create my own music. So eventually, I left the classical violin world and joined an indie band called Wood Pigeon, toured and played with that band for about seven years. And fast forward a bunch of years, eventually started my own solo project, Foon Yap. And now my music is a synthesis of my influences from my Chinese heritage, folk, and ambient electronica. All right. And so tell me about making the new single. What prompted it? Of course. So I was I was scheduled to perform at a art series called Free and Easy Wandering. And it was a collaboration with Mile Zero Dance in Edmonton. And unfortunately, of course, in late March, the the performance had to be canceled because of COVID nineteen. So I I asked the curator Paul Zhang whether I could turn the performance into a commission and release a piece based upon my experiences in the series later in the summer, and so I participated in the online workshops all throughout April and those experiences together with my own stories helped inform the single that's being released. And I think uh, you uh, mentioned uh, that uh, you were also inspired by Chinese poetry for the piece. That I'm also inspired by, yes, Chinese poetry, yes. So the title, Free and Easy Wandering, it's actually the first chapter of one of the seminal texts of Taoism called the Zhuangzi. And I apologize for my pronunciation. My Mandarin is okay. Like, mm, yeah. (laughs) So um, the first chapter, the first image is that of a fish 
transforming into a bird. And so what I noticed while I was participating in the series and from my own experiences is that for me, a lot of my resistance and suffering can arise from holding on dogmatically to an idea of who or how I should move through the world. And so I was really captured by this image of this transformation from the two animals, because for me in my life, I've noticed that that transformation is necessary in order to adapt to changing circumstances, which is so important, you know, in today as we're, as we're dealing with, with the pandemic. Okay. And so how have you been able to create and collaborate while in social isolation? Mm-hmm. So this single was, the collaboration was, um, you know, my participation in the series. And then the creation was, uh, I'm blessed with the home studio. And I brought in many local partners to help me come up with the finished track. So Chris Dadge plays drums and he mixed and mastered them as well. I sorry, mixed mixed and recorded them in his own space so that obviously we didn't have to be sharing the same air. And then my partner, Mike Gratton, played drums. And then the mastering was done by Pat Pilardi from Public Lunch Studios. So throughout the whole experience, I'm, a lot of it was by myself in a room. Um, but, you know, I felt really lucky that I was able to carry this project to its completion uh, with the technology that's now available to me. Also, um, you talk about some of your influences in, in your music. Um, uh, you talk about Lassa, who uh, played with Lilith Fair um, a few, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that influence is, I really enjoy how she's able to draw from her diverse background and experiences. And I draw from my, I have the same approach. So I am of Chinese descent, but I was born and raised in Calgary. And so that combination of East and West infuses my approach to music making. Tell me about your current project with uh, Pam Dang, uh, uh, who is a Taiwanese-Canadian dance choreographer. So this project is transforming as we speak because of the uh, pandemic. And so I think, you know, we were in an experimental phase when we were all forced to go into lockdown. But right now, it is a, a partnership of our approach to movement and sound. So obviously, Pam is bringing her own experience in dance and clown and gyro, uh, gyrotonics. And I'm bringing my own experience of improvisation and vocals. And we're working on a methodology for allowing the dancers to express their own essence spontaneously through sound and movement. Okay. And I guess uh, 
back to your influences, you also talk about、uh, the beloved Teresa Tang. Of course. Yeah. I have this very vivid memory of listening to Teresa Tang and other Mando Pop growing up because my father so loved that kind of music. And I think with this piece, because I, it has such a gentle, lush, beautiful cinematic feel, that kind of influence just crept into this piece. Yeah.、Um... Well, I went back、uh, yesterday to listen to、uh, Teresa Tang tracks. And so they do have a bit of a nostalgic feel as well as a bit of,、um, um, I guess, worldly fe-、uh, fe- feel because、uh, Teresa Tang also s- sang in Japanese and other languages as well. Mm-hmm,、yeah. mm-hmm. Yes, I hear the nostalgia as well. When I was in the mastering process, I felt the song. It felt like it was of its era in the 60s, but it's a strange mix because, of course, there's neoclassical influences that would have never existed at that time. So I'm really pleased with how it turned out.、Um, so、uh, you debuted、uh, the single、um, this past week, and this,、uh, this interview will be airing、um, Heritage, we- Heritage Day weekend、um, in Calgary. So... Uh, I guess,、uh, what, the, what do you think about the timing of this uh, particular uh, the re-、mm. launch of this piece? Yeah.、Mm-hmm. yeah. That's a great question, Jeannie.、Yeah. I think for me, this track is about the transformation of identity. And for me, that's an idea that translates to my own experience. Growing up as a, my own experience as a Chinese Canadian, I think, I think it's important for me to keep in mind that what it means to be Chinese and what it means to be Canadian is allowed to change. And through that change, I'm able to navigate circumstances with a lot more inner peace. All right.、Um, I guess. Uh, the last time I saw you on campus was probably um, uh, also in August uh, when it was、uh, when Slippery Cup was happening on the tennis course on campus. And、mm-hmm. I think we played opposite teams. Wow, that was a long time ago、yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was maybe six or seven years ago? Yeah, that was. But yeah, but I've seen you、uh, since then, though. Yeah. Of course, of course. Of course.、Yeah. Okay.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Okay. You have a great day. Bye. Okay, have a good day. Bye. Now I will play the single Free and Easy Wandering by Funya.
Hello, this is Nathan Taylor. For ArtsLink, I'm going to cover some more free stuff you can get with an internet connection, and they also happen to be my favorite works of film analysis. As a surprise bonus, and building on last month's use of the Internet Archive, what made this segment possible is the section on archive.org called The Wayback Machine, which has been crawling the internet, saving web page content since 2001. 
The first is about John Carpenter's 1982 film The Thing, and the second is an early version of a book about spaghetti westerns written by the director of Repo Man. When this episode is uploaded to cgsw.com, you'll find links to these great works. All About the Thing by Robert Meekin Published in 2006 on the comprehensive fan site for The Thing, Outpost 31, it begins with an introduction I found welcoming. The author has an uncynical opinion about film and ends by modestly telling us to read it, then forget about it. The author states that he believes The Thing to be instructional in how it goes about telling a story and proceeds to explain the format of his book, which I'll quote part of here. This book takes the point of view of someone watching the movie. For that person, it doesn't matter if something appears in the film by accident or on purpose, if the writer put it there, or if an actor happened to improvise it. All that matters is what we see and how we respond to it." End quote. I've never read such a focused narrative from a film analysis before, and to keep things on a moment-to-moment -moment basis like that really made it an exciting read. The Thing, part of John Carpenter's sort-of-official Apocalypse trilogy, which includes Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, is a paranoid, claustrophobic film that, like some of my favorite movies, features a realish sense of logistics and rules in its cinematic universe which help ground its fantastical properties. If you haven't yet seen it, it's a mostly one-setting film that, in its remote cold, details a series of confrontations between humans and a thing from another world that is able to take over the bodies of other organisms. Very much a whodunit kind of movie, it's based on a book aptly titled Who Goes There? It contains a couple of famous scenes at least as shocking as the chestburster scene in Alien, and Rob Botton's practical special effects to this day are both spectacular to watch and jaw-dropping to imagine how they were achieved. What I think makes this step-by-step -step analysis of the thing special is the way the author changed the way I watched the film and enhances the things I already liked about it by pushing the concepts a little further than I had considered on my own thus far. All About the Thing shows the events of the film to be just a litany of mistakes. Ones made by all involved, not just our ragtag group of humans, but mistakes and calculated risks made by the Thing itself. It emphasizes the interesting limitations of the creature, or creatures, and reminds us how much time, tissue, effort, and noise it risks with each overt move to assimilate someone. I quite like how the book supposes on the reasoning of the thing as a creature trying to survive, and how one thing sells out another to help draw suspicion away from itself. The author also writes about the pleasure of seeing characters on film that actually appear to be thinking about their next move, and I heartily agree, although what we're watching could be a smart move, or it could be the camera showing us the gears turning, and yet they still make another choice that could end up helping kill the world. Without taking away from the strong work Robert Meekin does by following this moment-by-moment -moment format, there are a couple of random musings he made that I thought were too good to leave without mention. When Kurt Russell gets mad at his computer after losing at chess and poured scotch into it, does the movie end the same way it begins? With a human giving alcohol to an inhuman opponent he has just lost to? Or consider this, what if both characters at the end are things? How would that change the context of their dialogue? Let's have a listen. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. 
At some point, this ebook disappeared from Outpost31.com, but I was able to retrieve it using the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine. So look for the link on CGSW when this episode of ArtsLink goes online, or find it yourself by searching Outpost31 from the Wayback Machine. It's a fun thing to use anyway. I do not know when it disappeared from the site, and I tried reaching out to the author for an interview, but was not successful in contacting him. I know the thing itself, the movie, is not for everyone, but I hope this analysis will be an engaging, exciting read for anyone who cares to give it a try. That's All About the Thing by Robert Meekin. And now for a short musical interlude between The Thing and Spaghetti Westerns. And what better connecting thread could there be for a musical interlude than the music of Ennio Morricone, who did The Thing and also most Spaghetti Westerns. Here is his theme to my favorite Spaghetti Western, The Big Gun Down. Ten Thousand Ways to Die by Alex Cox, the 1978 version. My best memory of the old library tower here at the University of Calgary campus was browsing the film section of books and finding, randomly, that the man who had made three of my favorite movies had also written a book about spaghetti westerns. Calling it a director's take on the spaghetti western and intending it to be his thesis, Alex Cox, director of Repo Man, crafted this as a student in UCLA in the late 1970s and later revised it to be published in 2009. As you may know, spaghetti westerns were the Italian, made-in-Spain films with dubbed audio due to so many languages being spoken on set, and made most famous by the trilogy of Clint Eastwood films featuring the so-called Man With No Name, though Alex Cox points out that he has a name in all three movies. This early version of his book states in its introduction that, It's a young man's book, of interest to young men, maybe, and to young women, if any of you like these things. I don't blame you if you don't, since they are hideously sexist and thick-eared. What follows is an enthusiast's celebration of an unusual genre. 
whether the celebrations are justified, whether the Italian Western killed the genre or kept it alive for an extra decade, and what that means I'll address later in my old man's book. I haven't seen all of his films, but Alex Cox directed at least two quote-unquote westerns, Walker, starring Ed Harris, and Straight to Hell, starring Joe Strummer. He's a born curator, and you can watch the many film introductions he did for Movie Drome on YouTube. He also states in his modern introduction that this version of his book followed the trend of the day, which was to arrange the chapters by theme, covering, for example, death, revenge, sex, madness, and religion, as separate chapters, rather than covering the films chronologically as the book now features. The section that covers good, ugly, and bad, in that order, lies under the heading Antagonists, and so you might find, as I did, that Cox knows these movies well and speaks a language most appropriate when discussing them. Take, for example, his description of a character as Tigrero, specialist in genocide. And in the movie drome introduction to Kiss Me Deadly, where the protagonist is the patriotic sadist private eye, Mike Hammer. The bad news about reading this book is that, as a proper analysis, it is spoilers galore for some obscure movies you might want to actually see. Good news is, if you keep in mind the alternate names these films have, YouTube makes it possible to work the book backwards from the index and watch for free the most interesting titles to skip around in. There is an actual From Simpsons real Troy McClure film you can watch. Hello, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such movies as Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die. This particular film is more well known as Today It's Me, Tomorrow You, and I agree with the author that it's well worth a watch for the villain, El Fago, played by Tatsuya Nakadai, who was King Lear in Akira Kurosawa's Ran, but is most memorable to me for his role in Kurosawa's Sanjiro and the holy crap moment within. He has such good close-ups of his ever-changing wild man face, and he is most frightening using a kind of square machete slash cleaver in place of a katana blade. It is interesting to see what niggles the author has with certain scenes in more well-known spaghetti westerns, like how Sergio Leone's extended version of The Good, The Bad, The Ugly works to the detriment of the film. I agree. Also how on Leon's masterpiece, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, he rightfully describes uh, Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson having the daftest dialogue in the West. So you found out you're not a businessman after all. Just a man. An ancient race. Interestingly, he takes attack on the logic of flashbacks that I have heard before and applies it to Leone's for a few dollars more. To me, it's missing the forest for the trees, but using his logic makes for a film arguably way crazier than is possible. I just don't see it, but read for yourself. If you like spaghetti westerns at all, you really ought to read 10,000 Ways to Die. Having read both versions of the book, I get the impression that the films Mr. Cox spoke the highest of were, uh, for a few dollars more, The Great Silence and Django Kill. Anticipating those who may indeed consider spaghetti westerns to be thick-eared, and that the Clint Eastwood Sergio Leone trilogy isn't for you, I would still suggest the following three titles as just good all-around entertaining movies that happen to be spaghetti westerns. We'll keep Django Kill in that list because it is oh so crazy, uh, and very nasty, uh, but we'll add in a couple fun ones. I would uh, absolutely recommend the movies starring Lee Van Cleef, uh, Sabata, and The Big Gun Down. Absolutely. So that's 10,000 Ways to Die by Alex Cox. That's it for Arts Link this month. 
Peter Prescott of Mission of Burma. And right now, at this moment, you are listening to CJSW 90.9, the University of Calgary.